Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Greetings. Once again, I am pumped up to share with you a really fun guest interview I did, and that was with Kevin Hall. And this guy has done so many trainings in so many countries around the topics of complexity and thriving in matrix style organizational structures and working with different folks and countries. So, so much good stuff. I think you're going to enjoy this. And in particular, you're going to learn one the star versus spaghetti perspective to minimize unnecessary attendance at certain meetings, two, approaches for getting the required clarity at work, and three, frameworks for quickly sizing up and adapting to different cultures. And if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the things mentioned here, you can find that at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep35. And if you just want the knowledge takeaway nuggets faster, sign up for the gold nugget email list while you're over there at awesomeatyourjob.com. Here's a bit about Kevin. Kevin is the CEO of Global Integration and author of the books Making the Matrix Work, How Matrix Managers Engage People and Cut Through Complexity, and Speed Lead, Faster, Simpler Ways to Manage People, Projects, and Teams in Complex Companies. He's the author of the Life in a Matrix blog, videos, and podcasts. As experienced corporate line manager, he spent 14 years leading teams in manufacturing operations, HR, and strategic and market planning in the telecoms and FMCG sectors. He lived in the UK and France and worked around the world. He's consulted with 300 of the world's largest companies, including PepsiCo, GE, Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, Morgan Stanley, W.L. Gore, Abbott, Samsung, and Vodafone, and delivered over 100,000 participant days of training in the skills of working in matrix, virtual, and global organizations. Here's Kevin. Kevin, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, yes. Well, I think we have a lot of fun to discuss here. But first, I was intrigued by a little tidbit on your bio. You've delivered over 100,000 participant days of training. So within those training experiences, I imagine there may have been a couple of times in which someone said something crazy off the wall, a question that shocked or made you laugh out loud. Could you share, were there any kind of bloopers or interesting outtakes that have occurred within all of these training days? Yeah, I think the most memorable ones are when you deliver training all around the world, you know, kind of trying to deliver a training in a porter cabin in Bulgaria when it's minus 20 degrees outside oh, wow. and there's one electricity plug and you can either have the overhead projector or the heater. And uh, that develops your skills in not using many slides, for example, or uh, training in a in a downstairs room in Turkey when there was a power cut in 42 degrees of heat and having to run a, a coaching seminar with people standing up to their necks in a swimming pool because that was the only way we could keep cool enough. So oh, those wow. are kind of some of the memorable moments. Oh, that's fun. You mean 42 degrees Celsius. Yes, yeah. UK, UK temperatures. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that is cool. Well, it's an interesting experience and memory, I'm sure. So so that's sure. fun. And and I'm excited. So you bring a, a wide array of, of this experience and knowledge and, and training uh, across the world and in many different kinds of organizations, particularly associated with the, the global world and, and how working with different countries is changing things and the matrix organization. And so I'd like to just dig into a bit of each of these. Now, when it comes to the matrix organization, 
or anytime you've got kind of multiple bosses or lines of responsibility, it can create some headaches and frustrations when, you know, one boss doesn't know what the other boss gave you. And it's, it's kind of like reminds me of high school where the teachers don't know who gave what, how much homework and, and it can sometimes just a mess. Sure. Yeah. So what are some of your best practice tips to help folks who they're not at the top of the organization, they're somewhere in the middle, uh, to kind of navigate that and and stay sane uh, with those conflicting priorities and orders and directives and challenges? Yeah, I mean, it's worth defining really. Matrix organization, strictly speaking, is where you have more than one boss. So if you don't have more than one boss, you're not in a matrix. But we're finding a lot of our clients now are using the word matrix to mean that whole thing where we have to work across functions or geography or business units. You know, we might have called it virtual teams in the past. They're calling it matrix teams now. And so matrix is, you know, people are usually on multiple teams. There was a McKinsey survey at the end of last year which showed that the majority of people in the U.S. spend at least some of their day, some of their week working on more than one team. So multiple teams is pretty much the norm. Our own research shows that people who work in virtual teams are probably on an average of about four. So if you're on three or four teams, then whether you've got three or four bosses or not, you have these same problems of clarity. You know, how do we make the situation clear when we've got, you know, to use your analogy, different people setting us different work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So clarity is a big one. And one of the insights we had is, you know, if you read most of the management literature, it talks about leaders having to create clarity. But if you're sitting in a matrix and you've got two bosses, you might be the only person who understands your own role. And if Mm -hmm. you ask for clarification from one of your bosses, they'll clarify, all right, but they'll only clarify their half, right? Yeah. (laughs) And you'll get the same message from the other. And that doesn't help you because those those demands, those goals, at the very least, will compete for your time and attention. So, for example, let's say you're a HR manager and your line of business boss comes to you and says, you've got to go out and you've got to hire five people and we've got to have them tomorrow or we won't hit our numbers. That's real clear, isn't it? Yeah, But at the same time, your HR boss is coming to you and saying, you know, you need to drive down the cost of recruitment and, and not spend so much money. That's also okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for you, when those two come together, they compete for your time and attention and priorities. And that's why clarity feels a lot different if you're in that kind of matrixed multiple team world. And the big learning for us was it's only you that knows that. And also, it's probably only you that has the motivation to clarify it. So strangely, the more bosses you have, the more you have to clarify your own goals and your own role. Okay. And so when you do that clarification, what does that sound like in practice? I mean, I think both your bosses want it their way and they they want what they want. So what do you do? Yeah, well, we have, um, I mean, the first thing is to go and see if there is some strategic clarity around the business. And, And we find that the vast majority of you know, even managers that we talk to in, in, you know, really great companies around the world have got very little idea what the key goals are for their organization and their department. So go and find a grown-up and ask them that. <laughs> my first piece of advice, because that may help you. And if you, can, if you can prioritize around that, then that's got to be helpful. So if, clarify your strategic goals would be my first thing. The second is we have a process we call the Islands of Clarity. And if you imagine you're, you're on a desert island and you've got a certain amount of sand around you, a certain amount of island, and that's your clarity. And what we're trying to do is to push that back and, and build a bigger island for ourselves. And so the first thing we should do is, um, is make a list of what's not clear. You know, when I talk to people in complex organizations, they often start off, frankly, by moaning and complaining that nothing's clear. Mm. And the first thing I say was, is that really true? So you don't know anything about your job. Every day you come <laughs> in, it's completely new and you have to make it up. It's clearly not true, is it? 
you know, even right. you know, most jobs, 75% of what you did is the same as it was last year. Okay. You yeah. might be working on a different project, but you're probably using similar skills and it's recognizably similar. So the first thing we say is, look, take those off the table and admit this is, you know, it's not everything. So that's the first thing we do. Second thing we do is we say, be specific about what's not clear. Because often when, I, when people say it's not clear, I say, well, what's not clear? And they, they kind of go slightly vague and they say, well, you know, ownership. Only what? Culture. Yeah. Ownership. <laughs> ownership and culture. Okay. Or culture. <laughs> or, you know, priorities. And I said, well, you know, you can't clarify that. Be specific. What, which priority? Between which two things? And once you get people to narrow down and be specific, the first thing you find is there's far fewer of them than that. If people can think of more than three or four, they're probably making them up. All right. <laughs> so be specific because you can't solve general generalities. Then we say, okay, for those specific things, is there someone in the business that should know the answer to that question? Mm. And more than half the time there is. So if you're not clear about what's the budget for this project or what the deadline is for that deliverable, somebody in the business probably knows that. Yeah. So really sophisticated leadership technique. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're usually down to a relatively small list. And um People then say to me, what, what do we do with these? I said, well, let's just summarize. These, this is a big issue for you. No one else in the business knows the answer. Guess whose responsibility this is? All right. It's on you. <laughs> it's got to be yours. Yeah. And so our advice on those pieces of, uh, of lack of clarity is you've got to make a proposal. You know, mm-hmm. if, if no one else is doing it for you, come up with some ideas, publish them to the stakeholders and try and get something happening. Because if you sit and wait for your bosses to solve your problems in a, in a complex environment, <laughs> you'll probably be mildly, uh, mildly disappointed that you're leaving. <laughs> event, right? Yeah, absolutely. OK, well, well, that sounds great. And that just sort of reminds me of sort of my approach to learning in in general, like going back to high school again, some flashbacks, I think I would sort of know what I didn't know and then try to close that gap. It's like, well, they're going to ask me everything. I don't know this part, so I'm going to go learn that part now. And I guess I call that yeah, process studying. Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good analogy. And, and you know, the, the corollary of that would be if you weren't clear about it, just sitting there and thinking, well, I'm not clear. I do hope somebody will remember to come and tell me. You know, that's mm-hmm. not really a very successful study strategy. No, certainly not. Okay, so... Well, that's very handy. I guess now I'm wondering if there's just a sheer disagreement over the proportion of your resources. So, like, I'm thinking if multiple bosses each think they have a a claim to you, well, there's really only so many work hours you have available in a week. And and you might be generous and and do some extra, extra credit, extra hours there. But I guess I'm thinking if 40 hours is the norm and you got three bosses and each think that they they should have half of you, well, then that's adding up to 20, 20, 20, 60 hours versus 40. So I guess, is that just another thing that falls underneath clarity? Like what needs to be clarified? Yeah, I mean... There's a number of aspects to that. I mean, I think, first of all, there's a kind of contracting piece, which if you're working for three bosses, right from the start, you've got to be realistic about how much time and uh, priority you can give to that. And similarly, if you're working on multiple teams, it's good to be explicit with your team colleagues there about how much time and priority you're giving to that team because they'll make the same assumptions as those, uh, those three bosses. So be explicit in the contracting phase. The second thing is I, I talked earlier about competing goals. Uh, and goals that compete for your time and attention are completely normal. Yeah, mm-hmm. the only time you don't have competing goals is if you've got unlimited resources, and I don't meet many of those people anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But there's a difference between competing goals and conflicting goals. So if, if conflicting goals mean in order to achieve one, I've got to fail at another, and an example might be I've got 60 hours worth of work and, and 40 hours to do it in, then you need to escalate. Now, the, the cardinal rule in escalating in the matrix is escalate up all the legs of the matrix at the same time. Because if you just go to boss A, they will explain to you how their 20 hours is a priority, and so will boss B, and so will boss C. So it doesn't help. What you might have to get is at least two or maybe three of those people in the room together to, to thrash that issue out. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. Now, and I know in reality that's quite hard because, you know, you can do that once or twice. If you do that every week, people are going to uh, be looking at you as if you're incapable of doing your job. Oh. So I, I appreciate <laughs> that gets tough. But uh, the alternative is you taking all that stress on yourself and, and uh, potentially burning yourself out. Okay. Well, well, that's very handy. And so I'm about to shift gears to talk about your book here, Speed Lead, unless there's anything else you want to say about the, the multiple boss challenge. I think there's one thing, which is we talk about clarity sometimes being a bit of a trap. You know, when, when people push for clarity, it's as if what they want is a really square box being drawn for them and a very clear job description so they can tell you what they won't do. And my, my personal view mm. is my favorite jobs were the jobs that didn't have a job description. And then yeah. if I thought it was really important, I just went and did it. And if people said, is that your job? I would say yes. <laughs> and if I thought it was trivial and people said, it was, was that your job? I would say no. no. So it gives me a lot more flexibility. And I think that as people in complex organizations, we've got to get a bit more comfortable with ambiguity and trade-offs and dilemmas and even conflict because that stuff happens and, and it's healthy. You know, the more passionate you are, the more professional you are, the more likely you're going to have some conflict. So, you know, get used to that and, and thrive in that environment would be my advice. Okay, beautiful. And, and so that, that's true. It offers flexibility and fun. And so take it, you know, make it work Absolutely. for you. Okay. Yep. So now your book, Speed Lead, that's just a great title. You know, Speed Lead, Faster, Simpler Ways to Manage People, Projects, and Teams in Complex Companies. So I imagine you've got a lot of takeaways, but if you could prioritize a bit and share, you know, for the person who is in the earlier phase of career or managing just a couple folks, uh, what are some of the, the top tactics and takeaways that you'd recommend to achieve just that? Faster, simpler ways to manage people, projects, and teams. Yeah, well, I guess my uh, my approach was informed quite a lot by my experiences. You know, 20-odd years ago, I was in manufacturing uh, at the time when a lot of these new Japanese manufacturing techniques came in about short lead time manufacturing and, and lead lean techniques. And during that time, I spent an awful lot of time looking at, you know, where's the waste in the process? And then I moved into various areas of my other areas of my corporate career internationally. And then I started my own business. But throughout that, I kept this idea of where's the waste. And, and one of the wastes I was always very aware of in uh, my corporate career was meetings. And I guess mm-hmm. we're all aware of that. And, you know, having worked with a lot of people on this average, on average, people tell us that managers and professional people spend two days a week in meetings. And only half of that time should they even be in the room. So we're wasting a whole day of a day a week uh, on meetings. And, you know, if I was going back to my manufacturing days, if I called my boss and said, you know, we want to put in place a new production line that will make 25% scrap, or you, uh, you went to buy a consumer product that broke one-fifth of the time, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or that one day a week wasn't operating. You'd be pretty uh, upset about that. And, uh, I, I don't know many places in business where we would be happy to – accept that level of waste. In other words, emails, I mean, 65 to 70% of all emails are, are waste. Yeah. Mm. And yet we, we write them, we send them, we store them, we buy servers to process them, we read them, we delete them. You know, there's a huge amount of time goes into that. So, you know, looking, you know, if you're sitting there bored, 
uh, out of your mind, then it's probably there's some work waste going on there. And, you know, as businesses become more complex and people get busier, I just think it's unacceptable to have the kind of work that doesn't need doing waste a day a week of people's time. Well, I've, I'm well on board. I'm well on board. So, well, I'm intrigued by that that stat about the email waste. And yeah. can you tell me a bit like about the source or how do we define a wasted email? I mean, that seems about right. But I don't wonder, how do you prove it? Yeah. <laughs> You know, but, but what we found in working with this, and this, this is one of the big takeouts from the book Speed Lead, was that underlying a lot of this stuff is just our belief about how we work together, how we collaborate. And, you know, the whole of my career has been the story of teams. You know, teams have become more and more important. And you know, I'm sure many of your listeners, you know, you start with a new company and the first thing they tell you is, you know, teamwork is a corporate value mm-hmm. and you're evaluated against your ability to work in teams. You've got to have a team meeting every month, you know, team, team, team. And <laughs> I grew up in that environment. I kind of accepted it. But then what I found is that if you think you're a team, then you've got to have a meeting, right? And you've got to share <laughs> lots of information. Okay. And uh, I got invited to meetings that just had no value to me at all. And I developed the idea of what we call star groups and spaghetti teams. So if you think about, if you had, let's say, six people, a spaghetti team is where all of those six people are connected to everybody else. So they're all working very intensively. They probably need some kind of live meeting, either face-to-face or audio conference or webinar, so they can all interact. And that's your classic idea of teamwork, right? Mm-hmm. The other way of thinking about it, a group is a group of people. A group is more a hub, of, hub and spoke. So you may have five people reporting in singly to an individual in the middle. And the group is actually a really effective way of organizing work that isn't too interdependent. So groups are great for the coordination of work. So if you have a number of salespeople who all have their own territories, their own skills, but report to a sales manager, then that's a group because the individual salespeople don't need to coordinate with each other very much, just the center. Does that make sense? Okay, sure. Okay. So if you think about those two modes of operation, Once we think we're a spaghetti team, then everyone has to share all information because we're tightly interdependent. If we're a star group, we only need to share things which are relevant to the two individuals who happen to be talking, usually the person at the center and you as an individual. Mm -hmm. Now, I think apply that to meetings. How much of the topics of the meetings that you attend are of interest to everybody there and everyone's engaged in? Yeah, but uh, that proportion doesn't look so good. It's not so good. Uh, we found that about 40% of all the content in meetings is, is what I'd call the transmission of information. So it's, it's either the person in the center giving information out, mm-hmm. or it's a conversation that only engages two or maximum three people. So that's nearly half of the content. That, that doesn't need to be done in a meeting. You know, you, if, um, if you've got a boring 27-page PowerPoint deck, you can email that to me and I can ignore it later. <laughs> you can sit there pretending to be interested, right? I'll schedule ignoring your PowerPoint for later. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I, you know, the, so the first thing we do with, uh, with meetings is get people to think about, is it a star group topic? Is it a, a spaghetti team topic? And if you read a search on that online, you'll quickly get to loads of stuff on our website, which, uh, which will help explain that, that, that topic a bit more clearly. Well, that is just a great framework, Rich, right there. It's like a quick acid test that can slice through a lot of unnecessary people being in the room. Yeah, I have an even quicker one. I often say to people, if you sit in your meetings listening to a series of boring, irrelevant updates from other people, well, you're happy to be there because in a minute you're going to give a really fascinating insight into what you did last week, then you're in a group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because if you really were a team, you'd need to know what they were doing in order to do your job because that's what teams are. Teams are interdependent. Perfect. Okay, well, that, that's great. Well, what else do we got for speed leading? 
cutting out that kind of, that also has a big impact, by the way, on decisions, because there's a tendency, again, because we think we're a team, that all decisions are made collectively. And uh, I, I often use the example, during, during my last corporate job, I had a real busy international role. I was averaging three countries a week for three years, so I was traveling like crazy. And my boss was based in the UK. I was living in France at the time. And he invited me to a monthly meeting, which had no relevance to me at all. Mm. And he insisted that I come. And so um, I sat in there and it was a HR meeting. And somebody started to do a pay and benefits review. And with the greatest respect to any pay and benefits listeners you have, that isn't the most interesting presentation you'll ever see. Mm -hmm. Unless you're getting paid more. (laughs) Unless it's your own pay. And so I started to do my emails and my boss got angry and said, what are you doing? I said, well, this isn't relevant. I'm really, really, really busy. I've got lots to do. Do you mind if I do my emails? And he dragged me outside the meeting room and said, no, I insist that you, you look interested, he said. To me. Oh, so I've back. heard that before, too. Snap before, <laughs> so you, you have to look interested. And right. he starts to hurt from smiling after about a minute. <laughs> and um, so after a minute, I thought, well, I can't just sit here. I, I have to participate. So I didn't know a lot about this subject, so I started asking questions. Now, oh. these are questions I don't need to know the answer to. Right. And I'm interrupting a guy who already knows these things uh-huh. and wasting his time while he explains it to me. Then about 10 minutes in, because I'm a smart sort of a guy, I start to have opinions, so I offer ideas. Okay. <laughs> which, of course, are terrible ideas because I know nothing about this subject. <laughs> but the person presenting has to be democratic and pretend to listen, right? Right. And then at the end of the presentation, there's probably 10 people in the room. Only one of them knows what he's talking about, and nine of us don't. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the room, what do we, at the end of the presentation, what do we do? We vote on what the guy should do next. Oh, boy. I mean, you know, it sounds absolutely crazy, but I bet all of us have been in that meeting about once a month. Oh, boy. That is, that is, so what happened afterwards? You got me on the edge uh, of my seat. That was the story's that conclusion. Was about, that was about the time I, I decided to start my own business. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the nice thing about being an external person. You can kind of hold the mirror up to some of these dysfunctional behaviors. And, and pretty well everybody agrees. They go, yeah, we do do that. It, it's just a habit we get into. And I think once you become familiar with these concepts, and particularly with a critical mass, when you've got a few people in the meeting or the, the company that understand it, you know, some of our clients say that all that happens is somebody will look up and, and just ask the question, is this really spaghetti? And people will go, no, no, you're right. And they move on, you know. So just the power of a concept and the language can be right. quite transformational in this. Absolutely. And, and I'd love to hear, do you advocate any particular, you know, script or language to do a good pushback on, hey, I really don't think it's necessary for me to be here. Like, how do you communicate that in a way that it's received? It seems like your boss wasn't hearing it. But what do you recommend for folks to successfully extricate themselves from unnecessary meetings? Yeah, you, you're right to point that out, because that would be an awesome but short career if you said that to your boss. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why we, one of the reasons I created the language Star and Spaghetti, because it's kind of non-judgmental. And so I think if you can you know, download one of the, the press articles or something around the idea or, or get a copy of the book and, and introduce that to your boss, what's really useful to do is to have that discussion about where's the spaghetti and where's the star in your meeting. Because what you're doing then is you're building a consensus in the meeting about what people don't need to be involved in. If you just start not showing up to meetings or cancelling your meetings if you run them, people will feel a bit upset. Mm -hmm. But if you explain the rationale, you know, people are delighted to get out of boring meetings. Absolutely. So so I think, you know, be explicit about, you know, I've been reading this book, I've been reading this article, listening to this podcast. This sounds like, you know, maybe we're doing that all. Uh, Another really interesting way of doing it is, and and again, I'd be explicit about your boss before doing this, is just make yourself a little checklist. And down one side, the left-hand side of your checklist, put the, the topic names of your meeting, 
and along the top columns put the initials of the people attending. And as the topic goes along, every time someone talks on that topic, you put a tick in the box. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the meeting, what you've got is a visual record of how many times people talked, which people talked for each of the topics. Oh, right? that's brilliant. Now, I know that's only, you know, how much people talk uh, isn't the only uh, indicator of participation, but it's, it's an easy one to get. At the end of it, what you'll find is there'll be some topics where everyone talked, and they're probably spaghetti topics. There'll be other topics where only one person talked or only two. They're almost certainly star group topics. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. And if you have individuals who don't say anything, then I think it's a, it's a valid discussion to have with them. Do they need to be at that meeting? And our, our finding is, on average, 19% of participants at meetings we evaluate shouldn't be there at all. 19%. Oh, yeah. that's good. Well, I love it how you, you've taken something that conceptually we know and frustrates us like, and, and then you've come up with a way to put some quantification behind that. And then you, I bet you, you, you slap that on top of the compensation of those people per hour. And then it becomes a pretty compelling case. Like, get them out of here. <laughs> get me out yeah, of here. I mean, we- we we, uh, we did some work with a, a large uh, fast-moving consumer goods company last year, year before, looking at meetings, and we helped them put together a business case on this. And they found this. They had eighty thousand employees, so it's quite a big company. Uh, but they found that the unnecessary meetings alone, so not only the meetings, but the ones that didn't need to happen, cost them five hundred million dollars a year, and it also drove another four hundred million dollars of, of travel. So mm. it was nearly a billion dollar a year, a year problem. Oh, that's wild. That's wild. Yeah. And and I tell you, I used some similar math when I'm kind of justifying the, the return on my enhanced thinking and collaboration training programs is that, you know, we're going to reduce waste associated with unnecessary and redundant analyses, you know, proven to be this many hours. And we're going to reduce the amount of unnecessary meetings. And by golly, that adds up. It makes you and I look like a bargain. Well, we are a bargain. Yeah, because, you know. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm well on board there. Well, so now I'm about to shift gears into, into talking about doing some management coordination with um, offshore outsourced business process outsourcing kinds of folks, unless there's anything else we should talk about Speedlead. No, I think that's good. I mean, we, we repeat that theme in Speedlead to other, other forms of communication, to decentralizing control and a few other themes. But the, the basic philosophy, I think you, you've got from that example around collaboration. Mm hmm. Okay, so so now I'm thinking about, and I've been here several times myself as well as others. I remember in a previous interview we had with uh, Claire Patterson Patel about rising like a star. She was given a choice by her manager, and she said, "Okay, well, we got some resources available for you to expand your team, and you can have either." Uh, one person in the United States or two people in India. And, and it's funny because some people will say, I want one person in the United States or because there's a, a bit of you know miscommunication, difficulties, assumptions, uh, cultural stuff, educational uh, learning differences. Like several times I've given some instructions to folks helping me out on things in, in the Philippines. And, and by golly, it just didn't come out the way I thought it would when it's returned to me. And it's like, What's the holdup? What should we do in terms of maximizing the clarity in in that particular two-way street of kind of west to uh, developing outsourced country? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing to realize is that anytime you make a cultural observation, it's 50% about you and 50% about them. Okay. Right? So if you see another culture as not very clear, it may mean you're too direct. If you see them as very emotional, it may mean you're repressed. <laughs> so I, I always take a cross-cultural observation as a reflection on myself. 
Yeah. Okay, that's good. So, uh, and, and one of my classic ones is time. You know, I'm one of these people, I'm on time for everything. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book about speed, for goodness sake. So that kind of that <laughs> helps with my interest. And when I go to other countries where time is much more flexible, if I go to Mexico and, you know, I, I do some work in Mexico, the whole of Mexico isn't going to change just because I was, I was there. And by the way, the Mexicans are pretty good at getting things done. They just do it a different way than me. Mm-hmm. And so I've, you know, I've learned from that. I've, I've generated some more techniques by experiencing that. And I've, I've got much more comfortable about it. So quite often, particularly when you're a visitor to another culture, you can't do anything about the other culture. All you can do is change the way you feel about it. All right. And if you take the example of punctuality, if like me, you come from a culture where being punctual is a sign of respect, then when people aren't punctual, what you think that means is they don't respect you. Mm-hmm. So actually, it's not the fact that they're late that makes you feel upset. It's the fact that what you think that means. Certainly. Like, you don't right. care about my time. You exactly. Know. Whereas in a culture where, where time is more flexible, very often what they prefer is flexibility. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they would rather change, change things at short notice. You know, I mean, we do stupid things because we're obsessed about time. So, for example, you ever been at that meeting that finished at 10 o'clock and the next meeting starts at 10 o'clock in a, in a room half a mile away? Yes. You know, so we, we do, what do we do, teleport? Do we have that? <laughs> <laughs> or we, we finish the meeting at 10 o'clock, even though we haven't reached a good outcome because it's 10 o'clock. Right. Yeah, so that there's pathologies mm-hmm. of either style. So I guess my first tip is see all the cultural differences and reflection on yourself and think about what can I change to get more comfortable with this rather than necessarily expecting the rest of the world to spontaneously work the way we work. Okay, well, that's that's fair. That's a good gut check. Uh, you know, look at the mirror. That's it's two way street. So, but then in this particular instance of Western folk in the Europe or the United States getting some assistance from folks in India, China, Pakistan, Philippines, what, what are some particular specific things to be on the lookout for in terms of adaptations we should make? So, ones on the time front. Are there some yeah. others? There's a whole load of this is one of the best researched areas of social science. So there's a ton of research on this. And there's some really good books I'd recommend called one called Riding the Waves of Culture by a guy called Fons Trompenas from a few years ago. Mm. Um, but the ones that have the most impact on, uh, on work, there are five. We, we've talked already about time. That's a big one. In some cultures, time is, is more linear and direct. And others, it's more flexible and, and changing. And we talked a little bit about that already. The second is the difference between how you get things done. Some cultures like to get things done through rules and processes and systems, and very often in the U.S., in the U.K., that's what we do. In other cultures, if you want to get exactly the same thing done, you would start by using your relationships and your network. Hmm. So in that, you know, if we're working with colleagues, let's say we are the the, the rules and process-based people, what we may do is we may underestimate the value of relationships. We may not invest in it. We may jump straight into doing the work without having found out anything about them as people. So if you put yourself in the position of a relationship person, suddenly I've got this guy from Europe or the U.S. on the phone asking me when something's going to be delivered and am I following the process? I don't even know know who they are yet. Right. You know, why should I give them any priority when I've got, you know, people I've known for 20 years sitting next to me with a problem? Fair enough. So I think you're learning to do both the rules and the relationships. Second is around status and hierarchy and how we get that. So in some cultures, uh, you know, you're only as good as your last appraisal. Uh-huh. Status comes from what you do. And that was that was traditionally the, the American way, although, you know, we have to admit that social mobility has reduced in Western Europe and the U.S. in recent years. But that was the traditional American dream, right? Yeah. Uh, the other side of it is you are who you are. You know, what school did you go to uh, in India? What caste are you a member of? Still have an influence in big parts of the world. And so, you know, the best person to uh, 
to do that international project, maybe a 24-year-old uh, fresh out of college um, because they've got good technical knowledge, but in a culture that has a high respect for age, they may not be very effective. You know, what do we do about that? Uh, and vice versa. So status is a big one. A third is the relative importance of the individual and the group. US and UK are both very high on individualistic scores in the, uh, in the research, which means that we, we start with the individual and work out that. So yes, we work in teams, but we work in teams so that we can be successful. In more collective cultures like Japan, like Korea, for example, it starts with the group. So unless you maintain group harmony first, you as an individual can't be successful second. So the harmony of the group, the relationships of the group are much more important than you as an individual. And that's a big one to get over for people from individualistic cultures. Mm -hmm. And the third one, which I, the final one, sorry, which I think might be behind what you, you mentioned about your college in the Philippines is directness in communication. Okay. So, um, yes, they're very what friendly. We often, <laughs> what we often say, you know, we, we'll call somebody up and say, uh, I need you to do this. Can you do it? And we hear, uh, well, yes. I'll do my best. You know, mm. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I come from the UK, so we, we have all kinds of uh, slightly indirect ways of saying no. You know, so we say things like, you've obviously worked very hard at that. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, oh. That's an interesting point of view. Let me get back to you. We have all these kind of things which sound kind of vaguely positive, but we have no intention of doing anything. <laughs> yeah. And so in, uh, in the Philippines and India, places like that, people will often say yes or hi in Japan. And what they mean is, yes, I hear you. Yes, I respect you not, yes, I'm going to do it. Okay. And so, for example, working with the Japanese, the most pointed no that you, you will probably get from a Japanese colleague is that could be a little different, difficult. I mean, that's basically go away. Right? Oh. So learning to listen in a different way, you know, so you ask your, your colleague in the Philippines if they've understood, they will probably say yes, because that's kind of the right answer and helps them save face. But if you ask them, okay, so I think, we, you know, can you just summarize back to me what you're going to do? Okay. Yeah. Oh, so turn it round, or, um, or what do you think are the steps, or what do you think will be the challenges in implementing that, or when do you think that will be ready? So don't say, you know, uh, can you have this done by Friday? Because, again, the answer may be yes. It's when do you think this can be, re this can be ready by, and what, will you, what help will you need to do that? You know, so ask those kind of open questions and explore it. Oh, thank you. I think you've maybe saved me many, many headaches in the, <laughs> in the months and years to come. <laughs> With that little well, gem right there. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really fascinating subject. I, mean, I first became interested in it when I was helping my previous company, M&M Mars, to set up businesses in Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic and Russia just after the fall of communism. And, and I, I did some cross-cultural research and, you know, I found that I was landing in countries for the first time. First time I ever went to, uh, to what was then Czechoslovakia. And uh, I did some cultural research. I, I identified the gaps between our corporate culture and the, the Czechoslovak culture. And I came prepared with basically a template that said, what challenges are we likely to have? And after a day, people who'd been there for three months were saying, how do you know so much about the culture? And literally, it was just by doing a cultural profile. Hmm. And I found it so valuable around the world, really, really helpful. And so when doing a cultural profile, are, I guess you've recommended some great book resource there. What are some of the other just key things one does to conduct a cultural profile? Yeah, well, the... Um, you know, you use the five dimensions that I've, mm -hmm. I've talked about, the rules of relationship, status, individual and group, communication directness and, and, and time. Mm -hmm. And what we, we draw like a Chinese abacus and we say that for each of each of those dimensions has one leg of the abacus, one, one strand of the abacus. And then the question really is, I mean, if you look in the books, there is research that says, you know, UK scores 97 percent on individualism and, and Japan scores 35 percent. So there is that data out there. Mm -hmm. But the real question we ask managers is, 
try and work out where are they relative to you, first of all, right. and is it a big enough gap you need to worry about? So if you're thinking about levels of directness, for example, you've got to work that out pretty quickly, right? Certainly. Uh, if you're thinking about different ideas about time, you're going to spot that possibly before you even meet for the first time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> where are they? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, yeah. So, so it's not actually that hard to come up with a, a, a simple gap analysis. And, and you, know, you can obsess about, you know, are they 72 and am I 73? If you're close, don't worry about it. Uh, if it's a big enough uh, issue for you to do something about, you'll notice it quite quickly. So the question then is, what do I do about the differences? And, and you've always got five choices. Whenever you see someone who's doing things different than you, and it, in this case, it's culture, it could be other things. If you imagine you, you've got a grid and, and you've got two axes, you've got you on one axis and them on the other axis. The first option is to just do it your way. Right. So, okay, we're having a meeting. You're late. I want to do it my way. Can I impose my view on you? And sometimes, frankly, if you're the boss in a big company, sometimes you can. Yeah. But you need to have the power to be able to do it. The second option is, can we do it your way? So my example, you know, if I, I went to a business meeting with a very senior uh, Gulf Arab uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in the Arab Emirates a few years ago. Um, I think I waited got about four hours for the meeting. Could I change that? Uh, well, it sounds powerful. I don't think you can. <laughs> you got to so, sort of do it. <laughs> you know, so I'm sitting in his office, you know, I've done the cultural research, so I know it's likely to be a long wait. You know, even for me, and I think about this stuff a lot, I was getting frustrated after an hour and a half. Right. And then I started to, to change the way I thought. And I thought, actually, you know, the, the, the real challenge in this part of the world for me is getting to meet, you know, influential Arabs. And I'm sitting in a meeting room with lots of Arabs. So I thought, hold on, what I've actually got here is an opportunity to meet quite a few new people. Lovely. And so I started having conversations and I met some people and we exchanged business cards. When eventually, you know, three hours later, they came in and started the meeting. I was a little bit disappointed because I was having a good time. <laughs> so, you know, that's an example of, again, what I said before, change your mindset. So those are the two uh, binary options. There's a third option that says, can we compromise in some way? In the UK, very often we say, well, the meeting's at 9 for 9.30, <laughs> which means, well, can't, you can arrive at 9 and there'll probably be some donuts and we'll have a bit of a chat and a socialise and a catch-up. At 9.30, we're on it, you know, and that gives people a little bit of chance to, to uh, have some flexibility. 9 for 9.30, that's fine. 9 for 9.30. <laughs> Uh, a fourth option is to do nothing, just say, look, we're different, so what? You know, it's not worth fighting over. And the final option is the one that, you know, all these researchers, they say, oh, we need a global solution, which kind of makes me sick most of the time. Yeah, the word, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sometimes there isn't a creative reconciliation of the differences, but sometimes you can, you can find different ways to do things. So I ran a conference once for a Swiss company, and the Swiss companies are off the scale on, on punctuality. Uh, but the conference was being held in Bahia State in Brazil, which is real flexible. Oh boy. And the hotel was very, very flexible. It was on Bahia uh, Brazilian time. And um, when we discussed what was because, you know, the meals were late, the sessions ran late because most of the uh, participants were from Latin America. The Swiss were very frustrated. <laughs> and, and this hotel was on a beautiful beach. And at five o'clock, it got dark. So when the conference finished, there was nothing much to do. And so I, I talked about these five choices I've just outlined with the group and said, Come back with a creative way of, of running the, the meeting for the next couple of days that meets your culture. And so they decided that they couldn't change the hotel. They tried, but they couldn't. So they said, we'll just adapt to the hotel. So whenever they serve a meal, we'll break them. Right? Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll compromise a little bit on everybody being in the room because uh, these were salespeople. A lot of them needed to be on the phone. And so quite often you couldn't get 100% of the people in the room. So we said, okay, compromise. Once 85% of people are there, we start. Yeah. All right. The one that was really the, the top right, the reconciliation one was they said, look, how about 
we took a break in the afternoon so we could kind of go to the beach, go swimming, go sailing, and then we come back in the evening and work late because then we can enjoy the facilities of the hotel. We have a nice break. We feel as though we've got some benefit. And the Swiss guy said, well, yes, but only if we work however late it takes to finish the agenda for the day. All right. So we agreed on that package of measures, which was a little bit do it my way, a little bit do it your way, a little bit compromise, a little bit come up with something creative. And it was a great success. Oh, that is a, that's a lovely illustration. And it's fun. I'm thinking of the Swiss people with their fancy watches. Uh, <laughs> noting... The Swiss are fantastic. I mean, if you've, if you've ever been, if you, you know, if you fly in from uh, to Zurich Airport somewhere for the first time, you, you take the train everywhere because the train system works great in, in Switzerland. And there's a clock on the, on the uh, station and literally it counts down the seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And if the train isn't pulling in, you know, I think sometimes that if the train didn't pull in at that second, people would just step off the, the platform anyway. You know, because... <laughs> It just the whole system works, and there's a lot of research actually that says that if you look at people's orient, a culture's orientation to time, it correlates with all kinds of stuff, such as how reg- how well the, the trains run on time, the average accuracy of clocks in public places, and even the the speed at which people walk. So it's mm. very pervasive. This stuff. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, we could talk at length, but uh, in order to have a reasonable length of episode, I'd like to shift gears here into hearing about some of your favorite things, unless there's another quick tidbit you want to make sure you, you get out there first. No, I think those are the main things. I mean, we've talked about speed lead. My, my more recent book is called Making the Matrix Work, which is a bit more around the, the clarity stuff that we talked about uh, earlier on. But those are, those are the two main sources for more information. Oh, perfect. And we'll definitely link those. So you. could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something that inspires you again and again? Yeah, I, I used to uh, do some competitive motorsport. I used to drive rally cars, you know, again, back to my obsession around speed. And one of my favorite quotes is from Mario Andretti, who was one of the world's most successful racing drivers in all kinds of different formulas. And he said, um, if you feel like you're in control, you just aren't going fast enough. Okay, that's fun. And how about a favorite study or piece of research you find yourself citing frequently? Yeah, a very recently one, actually. There was a study by McKinsey that looked at uh, at the Matrix, which is an area I'm spending a lot of work on at the time. And very often the Matrix gets a bit of a bad press in the literature because it is more complex and it, you know, it does have some challenges. But what the McKinsey showed was, what the McKinsey survey showed was that the more people were Matrixed, the higher their level of engagement which kind of reinforces, you know, the point I've been making for some years. That there are some benefits in this. You know, people kind of like the complexity and uh, the freedom and uh, the scope that that gives them. And so it's, uh, there are advantages to complexity as well as costs. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? <laughs> the, uh, the, there's a saying I like that says, when you encounter a person of rare intelligence, ask him what books he reads. Oh, yes. It's one of my faves. Uh, then uh, <laughs> the problem is I read really trashy science fiction and fantasy <laughs> books. <laughs> so I, can, I, I read a lot. So I, I, but I, that's what I do for kind of fun. In terms of leadership books, I mean, the one I always recommend is called Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. It's a really excellent book. And it's got some real life wisdom in there as well. So that's one I come back to time and time again. Perfect. How about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that has really expanded your effectiveness? I think during my corporate career, my principle was was always kind of read two books more than the next person and actually implement the ideas. 
<laughs> so so I, I moved around a lot. I started in human resources. I moved into manufacturing. I then moved into sales and strategic planning. I then moved internationally and did business development and all kinds of things. And whenever I moved, I would, you know, let's say when I moved into manufacturing, I'd get six books. And by the time I started the job, I'd have read the, the most up-to-date six books on manufacturing. And when I arrived, I'd be amazed that people didn't know half of the stuff I was talking about. Oh, wow. And the other thing I, I would do is if I read a book, I would say, okay, you know, I'd try and satisfy myself that it was good stuff because there's a lot of faddish stuff. But if I found sure. something I thought was really good and I'd check it out with some friends and, you know, maybe talk to my friends in university and say, what do you think about this? And maybe a couple of practitioners. But then if I thought it was good, I would actually just say, OK, they recommend doing 10 things. I'm going to do all of those. And I would just systematically blitz that stuff. And guess what? You know, having any kind of strategy normally beats having no strategy. So um, what I found in general is when I executed on that stuff, I saw the benefits. Oh, that's exciting. Well, good. That, well, that, that reinforces this podcast is worth existing in the world. <laughs> I, th- I think one of the things one of the things now, you know, since, since I've been an entrepreneur and grown the business is, is really to, to try and get beyond selling your time. And right. if any of your, uh, your listeners have, have read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, I'd recommend that to anybody, wherever they are in their career, just getting beyond that sense of, I just have to work hard and make more money and spend it all um, to getting into how do I create assets? How do I create passive income? And how do I, you know, live off the money that that makes rather than just uh, spend my whole life on the hamster wheel? Mm, agreed. And how about a sort of a, a fan favorite a nugget, a piece that you share that gets people nodding their heads, taking notes, retweeting, Kindle book highlighting? I, I think if I, if I look back over the two books, probably the, the one that our participants, our participants reference the most is the star and spaghetti idea. You know, I think it because it's it has the potential to make a big difference for people. And I, I'm kind of really proud of the thought of, you know, people coming into work and actually doing their jobs rather than wasting their day in meetings. Oh, fantastic. And how about uh, best way to find you? Would you point them to your, your website or Twitter or email? Yeah. So uh, the website's www.global-integration.com. Um, on the Twitter, I'm at Kevin, and my name's spelled K-E-V-A-N, so Kevin Hall. Uh, be careful because there is another uh, Kevin Hall spent the same way who's a famous Hollywood dress designer. So if you come across <laughs> someone who looks in any way stylish, it's not me. <laughs> I, I think your headshot looks pretty stylish. <laughs> <laughs> and how about a favorite a parting word or call to action, a challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? I guess one of the things I was taught during my corporate career, I worked for some you know, great companies, and they always said there's two ways to progress in your career. One is to kind of apply for the next job and go on a selection and, and win through. And the second is to just start doing the job at the level you want to be at. And eventually somebody will say, really, you're not already at that level and will ratify it. I think the yes. second one is, is, uh, is much the more successful strategy. So I would say, you know, just start doing the job at the next level up straight away. Oh, I love it. Well, well, Kevin, this has been so fun and, and helpful for me and hopefully all the listeners as well. I wish you tons of luck and, and success and, and smooth travels as you're gallivanting across the globe here. Thank you very much. And uh, I wish all your listeners good luck. Thank you. Well, I hope that was super helpful. And you are now ready all the more to take a look at which meetings may be star versus spaghetti meetings and make them better and ensure that you got the right folks in the right group. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, transcript, things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep35. And catch you next time. 
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 